Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Connor, and thank you for joining me today. This is kind of a special episode, something like we did last week. So I'm not going to do something like this every week, but in the weeks where we have topics where maybe I have a personal story or anecdote or something like that, that translates to what we're talking about, I'll tell it. And just so happens that the last couple of weeks I do. This week on the show, we talked about Raymond Shrimp Boy Chow. He was a gangster. Well, still is a gangster, but he's in prison now. He's doing life. He's doing forever. He's never getting out. He was a guy that was a soldier. Then he became a leader. He became a leader of a gang. He became a leader of the Tong. He was almost like a co-leader of an organized crime outfit along with a man named Peter Chong. We talked about all this. So there was one part of this story that we left out, though. So last week's episode mostly followed the life of Raymond Chow as it intersected with things that were going on in Chinatown. Just during his time, the things that he created, the situations he created, things that he was involved in. We talked about the Golden Dragon Massacre. He was a witness to that. He had a front row seat to it. He was one of the targets of it. However, there is a time that, as I've stated, we skipped over. He went to prison in the mid-90s. Peter Chong had actually fled. So Raymond Shrimp Boy Chow, he had gone to prison where he was awaiting trial. He'd already been sentenced in 1995 to 23 years. He's off the street. The day-to-day operations guy for Wohop Toe, for this very organized apparatus at the top of Chinatown that directed everything underneath of it. The person that was doing, carrying out of these orders, that would be Shrimp Boy. He's locked away. The person devising these schemes and the person, most importantly, that has the international backing of the triad that has tens of thousands of people behind him. So these two people are gone. There's a lot of money to be made there still. Just because the most prominent or preeminent criminals of that time aren't around anymore, it doesn't mean everybody else is just going to go home. Quite the opposite. Usually in a situation like this where there's a very effective management apparatus that's controlling multiple layers of crime, because mind you, that's what's at work here. At the very bottom of this pyramid, and this is the majority of manpower, this is the majority of people involved in such things, you just have soldiers. That would be the people that belong to the different gangs in Chinatown. Two of them are pertinent to the story, and we'll get to them in a second, but that's that bottom layer. Then you have the people that control the things going on below them, and they kick up the money to the people above them. In this case, that would be the Tongs. The Tongs, for most of their history, were that top layer. But with the imposition of this new regime by Peter Chong and Shrimp Boy, they become middle management. And they, they don't have a choice. They don't have a choice. This top layer would be Wohop Toe. Wohop Toe calls all shots, directs all movements, says who you can fight with, says who you can't fight with, how much you're going to sell your product for, how much you're going to get back. That top layer is gone. Other organizations and other entities strive to be that top layer. As we talked about just in the episode, the gangs operate under the direction and control of the Tongs. And at this time, two gangs started fighting for control of Chinatown. One was called the Hop Sing Boys. This is the gang that Raymond Shrimp Boy Chow joined when he came to America and was the leader of and then became the leader of the Hop Sing Tong. There's them. And then there's this other gang called Jackson Street. We're going to get into that. We're going to get into that conflict. We're going to talk about my connections to this. Namely, I lost a friend to this conflict. Let's talk about it. In September of 1988, I started kindergarten at a school called Unipero Sarah Elementary School. 
it's in Bernal Heights. It's right across the street from Holly Park. And it's also right across the street from the Holly Court Projects. It wasn't an easy school for me to go to. So really for any kid anywhere, I would, you know, some people would say in this part of the country, maybe being this color or this ethnicity or this religion maybe isn't the best thing to be. The truth is that I found, I've experienced it uh, across all spectrums from all groups, is if you're different, that's good enough. If you if you have some kind of noticeable difference, that's good enough for kids to fuck with you. Kids aren't the most creative people on earth. Sometimes it can be, but as far as the motivations for why kids screw with other kids, being different is probably top of the list, especially if that difference is stigmatized in any way. So I had a, I had a couple of those. So... I would say the most obvious difference would be uh, I was a white kid. So at the school and in the video version of this, just of this story, I'm going to show you guys what my second or third grade class looked like at Unicrosera. My name's included. Everybody else's name is blacked out. You'll just see what the class looked like. Out of a class of maybe 25, 30 kids or so, maybe five kids are white. Five kids alone, I believe, are just Cambodian. There's Filipino kids, black kids. Not too many Latino kids, uh, more Middle Eastern kids than Latino kids, which is interesting considering how close we were to the mission. A lot of people even considered us part of the mission, but that's besides the point. So I was a white kid. That's, that's different enough. In a school where most kids aren't, that's good enough. That's across the board. Add to the fact I was poor and like noticeably poor. That's good enough. On top of that, I was also very weird. I was a really weird kid. I'm a pretty weird adult, but at least I've had years to figure out how to hide it and like <laughs> at least uh, not unveil it the first time I meet somebody, all this crazy shit comes out of my mouth. No, kids don't really have that training under their belt yet. So I was a weird kid and I was a shit talker. So if somebody said some shit to me, they were going to hear some shit back. It led to a lot of just nonsense, a lot of fist fighting. A lot of just getting in trouble, getting sent home, fighting in the schoolyard, fighting in classrooms, fighting really with whoever. Just in the first second, some people, they'll talk about, oh, I'm trained to go, I'm going to take off, I'm going to do this. It was like that for me pretty much maybe second or third grade onward. It just had to be that way. I just had to hear so much bullshit that it just become, it would just become an automatic response. I'm going to take off on it. And I didn't have a lot of friends at that school. Those things, you know, I'm not going to say the white thing because there were kids there that were white that got on with people perfectly fine. That had friends that were semi-popular, if not popular. It wasn't just that, but yeah, I was also poor. It's not like you're going to come over to my house and play video games. You're not going to come over to my house and do shit other than be like, damn, this kid doesn't have shit. So there's that. And I'm weird and I'm, I'm an aggressive weirdo. <laughs> you know, I didn't have a lot of friends. There was one kid I remember who showed me love, though. His name was Ronnie Look. So Ronnie was a Chinese-American kid. I believe his mom was from China. She was either from China or Hong Kong. She didn't speak English with him. I only ever spoke English with him, and he didn't speak English with any anything other than like a San Francisco accent. He was very friendly to me. He was very friendly. So this was a kid that didn't have to be friendly. If he wanted to just be like everybody else... He could make fun of me, he could pick fights, he could do whatever he wanted. Nah, man, he just wanted to hang. He really liked playing handball. So in San Francisco, I guess our version of street handball is a little different than 
what our friends down in Southern California and the rest of the world plays like. Most people play with a really tiny ball, like a tiny little rubber ball that you slap up against the wall. Uh, if you ever watch the movie American Me, they have a pretty cool handball scene uh, in the Pinta there. Um, we didn't play like that. We played with like a kickball that you would bounce up against the wall. So that, that's what we would play all day. That was our favorite sport. I loved playing it. It was like the first sport I ever played. That's where me and Ronnie really met. I don't remember if it was in second grade. It had to be, he was a grade ahead of me. So when I went to fifth, he graduated, obviously. It was probably on my end, like we met in like third grade. And we were close, man. We were close. We would just hang out every day at school. We were playing handball, just chilling, man. Like just chilling, just friend. Just really just that type of friendship that exists at that age of like you guys just meet each other, cling to each other. And then perhaps it only lasts for like six months or something or that kid moves away and you never see him again. It was one of those. But when we knew each other, uh, we showed each other love. I just remember he was a nice kid. He was always nice in class. He was friendly to the teachers. He was friendly to other kids. And the thing that kind of sticks out to me about Ronnie about that time is that he always wanted to wash his hands. He always wanted to make sure his hands were clean and he didn't want his clothes to get dirty. He was just a very clean kid, which was in total, <laughs> everything about that was the opposite. I would go roll in some mud. I'd go slide down the hill I didn't care. I wasn't taking a shower. I was just like a little dirty kid and kind of proud of it. So it stayed like this. It stayed like this. And as I said, Ronnie was ahead of me one grade. So he graduated first. So I graduated from fifth grade 1994. He graduated in 1993. Unfortunately, that was the last time I ever saw him. From that time, really in just the way I look at it, from sixth grade onward, that's when I started really experiencing life. Because I'd experienced plenty by that time. I'd experienced some stuff that maybe a lot of kids shouldn't have, but I did. But in the city at this time, it wasn't uncommon for kids to take public transportation to school. So, for example, where I went for sixth grade, because I went to a lot of different schools because I was getting into a lot of different kinds of stupidity, bullshit, trouble with kids, fighting, just nonsense. Just either that or getting kicked out getting suspended too many times. So in total, I went to six different schools. And when I went to my first middle school, it was all the way across town. And I would have to take the bus from where I lived in Bernal Heights all the way to Aptis, which is kind of, uh, it's on the way to the zoo. It's miles away. And those buses stop at every fucking corner. Every corner, 23 would stop. Kids would get on. And aside from just learning how to maneuver on my own I'd be with my sister sometimes sometimes I wouldn't most of the time we would because she was in eighth grade at that school we would go together I would still have to be aware of things on my own one of the first things I started becoming conscious of was gangs now this didn't affect me too much at Aptis because there weren't the, the gangs that people claim in San Francisco weren't really represented at Aptis so we're different in a way San Francisco Oakland with the exception of Latino gangs and with the exception of Asian gangs, it's everything else is neighborhood-based. So you might be from this housing project right here. You might be from West Point. This person's from Big Block. This person's from Mac Block in the Fillmore. This person's from Portrayal Hill. This person's from Acorn in Oakland. This person's from The Village. So on and so forth. 
when you look at gangs, traditional gangs in LA, Chicago, it's the street, and then it's the set, and then it's the umbrella organization. So it goes like, I'm from 107 Hoover Criminal, or West Side 107 Hoover Criminal, or I'm from 8-Tray Gangster Crip, or I'm from, I'm from West Side Rolling 60s Crip, so on and so forth. That's how those things break down. We don't really have that, with the exception of Asian and Latino gangs in the city. But I started getting aware of those things, particularly the Asian ones, because there was a fair amount of Asian kids at school. That summer, I was already starting to kind of turn into a knucklehead, particularly uh, as a teacher told my mom, my fists were really going to have to catch up with my mouth. So people would say shit. I would say shit back. In their mind, it would be unacceptable. And a lot of the shit I would say was unacceptable. So I had a habit of like talking about people's grandmas and shit. So I knew a lot of the kids around me, like I was raised by my mom. So if you're saying some shit about my mom, you're saying something about essentially both my parents. But I knew a lot of kids didn't even have moms raising them. It was grandma raising them. I'm going to say some shit about the people that are really going to, you know, you really care about. You might not care about your dad. You might not care about your mom. You might care about grandma, though, or great-grandma, or this, that, or the third. I would go back in time on your ass. And <laughs> it, it didn't do me any favors. I guess the smart thing would have been either just start knocking people out, which wasn't really my way. It, it just wasn't. I wasn't the kid that was just trying to do all that. But I wanted to be left alone more than anything. I, I could have just shut the fuck up and just been just been a square. I didn't really seem to want to do that either. So I was just in the middle of stuff I had no business being in the middle of and usually suffering for it. So that's me during this time. And this, um, this was over the summer. After all this, I'm starting to get into trouble. I'm starting to get suspended. I'm starting to get suspended for fighting. Stuff is escalating. It's just getting stupid. So I got to leave Aptus because I'm getting into too much shit. My mom decides to send me to Everett. Before that, there's a Catholic church called St. Kevin's that's right up the street from me. That's the first time I ever encountered gang members. With the exception of my old neighbor, who was, uh, she was a Nortenia. These kids were kids my own age. She was a lot older than me. These are kids my own age. I start hanging around them. So I start developing that gang consciousness, that this is, this is what Norteño is. I already knew what Norteño was, though. I had a friend whose brother was from 31st Street, so I already knew what that was. And I knew who we, quote-unquote, as the people in the neighborhood weren't supposed to like, that would be the Sureños. I started hanging out with them every day. I started learning more about the conflict, more and more about what's going on. I even started self-identifying, which is very fucking dangerous, because you should not be claiming anything you have not been inducted to. I was an 11-year-old kid. I wasn't the smartest one, and I wanted to be accepted. These people were showing me love. They were showing me that acceptance I had never gotten anywhere. I had gotten the finger a lot. I had gotten fists. I had gotten kicks. I had gotten all kinds of shit. What I hadn't gotten was this, which is some homeboys saying, hey, you can come kick it with us. They're the coolest guys here. There's like three girls that go here, and they just fucking like revolve around them. They revolve around them like these guys are the sun. I want to be a part of that. Thankfully, I wasn't, and that's going to be its own video at some time, why it didn't go that way. And I'm very glad that it didn't, because the next year, I started going to Everett. And when I started going to Everett, I started going to a school where if the kids were gangbanging there, and a lot were, it was all Sudanians. So I would have been going there as an enemy. I don't know what would have happened to me, but it wouldn't. I wouldn't have lasted there very long. As it was, I lasted for two years. And I never became a gang member, as I stated. I did become a tagger, though. 
So I started tagging, started doing graffiti in eighth grade. That's when I started being out in the streets, picking up information about the streets, picking up information about what's going on. Mind you, I already have my own bit of information. So just to get, for example, just to get from my house, if I want to take the 14 mission bus from my house on Cortland, I'll walk down to Cortland and Mission. By the time I hit 24th Street, I've already passed one gang's territory. So I'm already in LNS territory, which is an Ortenio set. If you keep going on the bus down to 20th, which is just a couple blocks, that's an MS set. So that's an MS-13 Marsal Vitrucha set that existed there on 20th Street Mission. You go two or three more blocks down the street from there, now I'm in a different Sudanio set. So I got to cross three sets just to go to school. That has a heavy effect on you. I pretty much, if I ever wear a color, it was black or gray or green or some neutral shit because I didn't want to be caught, especially over there, wearing red. 49ers are my favorite team. I'm not wearing anything because that's identified with gangs. Even if I'm just in my own neighborhood, I might be going over there wearing it. They could be coming to my neighborhood to do a mission. And now, cool, we saw one. It is what it is. That colors a lot of your life. Whether you bang or you don't, you still have to consider all of these things. You still have to play by these rules, especially if you have people in your life that do bang. And maybe, let's say, somebody sees you with one of those people. And you're going about your own business. Hey, there goes that motherfucker. He kicks it with so-and-so from blank. Now you're just as bad. You're just as bad as so-and-so from blank. And that could be the end of your life. Just because that's your friend, that's your uncle, that's your cousin, whoever. That's the reality. As I start getting out into the streets, I start hearing about these different gangs. I already know about the ones in the mission. I got to deal with that. I got, I got to live that reality of just negotiating it. But I'm starting to hear about gangs elsewhere. I'm starting to hear about the Cambodian gangs, the quote-unquote Cambodian Crips. I don't know if they were from Tiny Rascal. I don't know if they're from Asian Boys. I don't even know if they were really Crips. But that's what we used to hear in the streets were about the Cambodian Crips. We hear about the Samoans, too, the Sons of Samoa. We hear about them, too. Even some of the Samoans that were in uh, tagging crews, we're hearing about FCK. We're hearing about them. But we're really hearing about Jackson Street Boys. We're hearing... Jackson Street Boys do not play. They don't play. And for people that live in communities that don't have a lot of Asian folks, maybe you guys are saying, well, what are these Chinese gangs doing? Those guys aren't this. Those guys go to law school. Those guys are good at math. Or those guys are harmless. They don't fight. And I'll say it's a lot of those stereotypes that a lot of people have that's getting people attacked on the street, in my view, because... I feel like a lot of the people attacking folks on the street are looking for somebody weak or defenseless that won't fight back and hold some advantage over them in some way. That's why I feel like folks are going after Asian folks. I can say this. We didn't feel that way about Asian folks back home. Those gangs in Chinatown were killers. That's what we thought about. We thought those guys killed, those guys shoot. People were dying at that time. Places like Bodecker Park getting shot up all the time. Just shooting, 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 shooting. I'll even say this. I had a coworker that I had a crush on at a job when I was about 18 years old. And I remember she told me she had a boyfriend. I was like, man, I ain't tripping off that. I'm going to still try to do what I'm going to still try to do. She told me one day, we're walking down the street. Mind you, she's Asian. He's Asian. And he's a member of the gang. She said they're just walking down the street minding their business. Her boyfriend sees a rival. And with her right next to him, and with all this... Whatever else is going on just on a public street, pulls his shit out, 
and starts clack, 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 starts shooting at the guy with no regard for where the bullets go. If anybody's next to that guy, he just sees an enemy, tries to kill him. And needless to say, I was like, oh, I'm cool. Like, you know, me and you are friends. Like, <laughs> I'm not tripping anymore. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going out like that. I'm not going to die messing around with a killer's uh, girlfriend. That's really stupid. So that was, that's what we knew the different Asian gangs were being very, very violent, incredibly violent, very organized, very organized on the same page. But man, they, they weren't playing. If it was an issue, it was gunfire. So as time goes on, I'm out in the streets on tag and I'm not, a, I'm not banging nothing and I'm glad I'm not banging nothing. But I'm hearing about stuff. There was somebody that I knew from elementary school and then someone I reconnected with in middle school. Her name was Yolanda. And every time I would see Yolanda, I would ask her about Ron because they, they live close to each other. They were both living like over on, I think, like 22nd, 22nd and Cap, 22nd and Mission, 22nd and Valencia, somewhere over there off the like 21st or 22nd. They were living over there and she would see him. She would see him. They were friends. They were friends from back in the day. And as time would go on, she would have more not good news. It would be, hey, what's at first? Hey, what's going on with Ronnie? Oh, he's cool. Like, you know, he's just doing blah, blah, blah. And then six months goes by. I'd ask, hey, what's up with Ronnie? Ah, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's going on with him. A few more months goes by. She's telling me, Ronnie's out here tripping. I don't know what's going on with him, but he's acting really crazy. Then it's, it's other friends of ours from that time. That still seem everybody sees him but me. Everybody sees him but me. And they keep telling me worse and worse stuff. More erratic, more erratic. He's just acting crazy. We don't know what's going on. We don't know what's going on. And then one day, I hop in my friend's car. It's summertime. It's summertime in 1998. I'm 14 years old. By this point, I'm so miserable in my life. I'm getting high or drunk pretty much every day. Uh, it's not long after this point, I start carrying a gun with me. I'm just, we'll get into that at some point, but I lose my shit around this time. And I get in my friend's car, we're chilling, blah, blah, blah. And he says, Hey man, did you hear about Ronnie? I said, nah, what's up with him? He's dead. He's dead. I said, what the fuck are you talking about? man?" he said, yeah, somebody killed him. Somebody killed Ronnie. So even to this day, I'm not really too sure where it kind of went wrong. So I don't know at what point Ronnie started gangbanging. Like I said, when I was a kid, when we were kids, when we were just in school playing handball and stuff, it wasn't like that. That was the last thing I ever expected from a kid that was doing his homework, that was respectful to his mom, that was always happy to see his mom. His mom was always happy to see him. I never saw a dad with him. It was just always her. She would, if he was living over on the 20s, she would come walk from 22nd of Valencia or Cap or whatever, all the way over, walk him all the way back there very close. And I don't, I don't know still to this day. I have one friend, shout out to him. His name's Omar. Omar knew Ronnie this whole time from around the same time, from the mid nineties. I'd known Ronnie since a little bit before that. Me and Omar have known each other since like 2008 and only recently just spoke about him. And he told me, he was like, yeah, he was a tagger. 
He was a tagger. We were both doing graffiti at that time. Graffiti among teenagers in the mid-90s was huge. It's something I want to just talk about because it's its own cultural just thing. It was its own culture in and of itself. I was highly active in that. I sucked, but I was active. So <laughs> I can say I, I was practicing my craft as much as possible. I never got above just garbage status, toy status, but I was out there. I was doing it every day, and Ronnie was too. I've seen this kind of thing happen before, though. I've seen kids that were good students wearing glasses. Ronnie wore glasses. He had a very spiky, nerdy haircut. He had the same kind of very, almost like a, like a pilot's jacket, a gray pilot's jacket he used to wear every day. Like I said, obsessed with washing his hands and went wrong. I think about it, though. Most of the time that he was a kid, he was living in the Mission in Bernal Heights, which are two, as I've said, very diverse neighborhoods. There are Chinese-American kids as well, and kids from China, kids from Vietnam. There were a lot of kids that were Filipino, a lot of Cambodians. Those were the kids I grew up more so, not, not as many Chinese kids. I'm wondering, when he first started going to Abraham Lincoln, which is a school out in the avenues that has a lot of Asian students, I wonder if it was the first time he maybe felt like he was around his own people. And maybe if he was already street-orientated or if he was already feeling tough or he was already out here doing illegal stuff anyway. Because, yeah, graffiti, you're, you're breaking the law every day you do it. Every time you do that, you're breaking the law. I'm already breaking the law, so what's more breaking the law? That used to be my mentality. Maybe it was his as well. At some point, he became a member of the Hobson Boys. And... Hopsing Boys and Jackson Street. Like I said, Jackson Street, even at that time, already had that rep. It already had that reputation of don't play with them. They're killers. There was a subset called the Seven Stars. And sometimes the way these things work out is maybe you can look at a gang, for example, like the Insane Crips in Long Beach. The gang's called the Insane Crips. That's what the OGs of the gang, the guys that founded it, guys like Trady. That started that gang, that's what they called themselves. But the new generation called themselves something kind of different. They called themselves the Baby Insane, the B.I.G. It could be something like that where just the Seven Stars were just the younger Jackson Street Boys. Maybe Jackson Street Boys, that was all the generation of gangsters, and the next generation were the Seven Stars. I don't know. It is what it is. Either way, there was a faction called the Seven Stars, and they started beefing with the Hobsing Boys pretty bad. People started getting killed. I ended up finding out later, a week before Ronnie's death, some guys from the Seven Stars, from Jackson Street, they tried to jump him. Ronnie had a blade on him. He stabbed one of them. They got away. They ran away. The problem is, the next week, he was at a place called the Amusement Center, which used to be on Broadway Street. And this is a big arcade. This is a big arcade. Ronnie was playing some video games there. A guy named Combs saw him, so he saw Ronnie. He recognized him from the week before. He walked up behind him in this arcade, in this public place. He shot him to death. Combs was a kid as well. Ronnie was only 15 years old when he was killed, February 17, 1998. Rest in peace to Ronnie. The kid that killed him was only 16. And these things had become so internalized. These codes of conducts and expectations of action when you see your rivals. Like I said, Ronnie, he could have just gotten jumped. He could have just ran. No, he saw these people about to rush him. He pulled the blade out. It was all he had. 
and he got to gangbang. If people want to be gangbangers, that is the essence of gangbanging. Is when you see your rivals, you do something. You could it could be something as simple as you throw up your hood, you throw up your set, they throw their shit up back, you guys keep it pushing. It could be something more as you throw up your your shit and you disrespect theirs, you guys get into a fist fight. Or something like this where it's already gotten to be so bad that when you guys encounter each other, you try to kill each other or do kill each other. And it gotten that bad. Unfortunately, well, I'm not going to say unfortunately that he was arrested. It was unfortunate that the police let him go after he was arrested. So Clarence was arrested with two other teenagers. One of them was like 12 or 13 years old. And he's, he's going on a mission to kill. Or it just, they spotted him. They were just chilling together and they see him. And then that, that's what they did. They killed my friend. They did this. They get arrested for it. The police release for some reason. And it takes them almost a year to re-arrest him. I, and this is where I run out of information on this. I don't know what happened to him to this day. I understand the times that he and Ronnie existed in and what they committed themselves to. These are the things that happen when you gangbang. When you gangbang, there's only a couple of outcomes. One of them is you get killed. One of the other outcomes is you go to prison for a really long time. You might get injured somewhere along the way. Something bad might happen to you. You might lose your damn mind. You might lose your legs. You might get shot and get paralyzed. All these things can happen. Probably the only thing that doesn't happen is you make a bunch of money, you walk away from it, and you're successful. So all that bullshit you see in movies, that isn't what happens. When you see bullshit, you know, bullshit depictions of gangs in movies and on TV where all these things are happening, it's so glorious and valiant, they're shooting off. No. What happens is a 16-year-old hate somebody so much that they go and blow them away in public without any thought of anything. No thought, no care, no nothing. I don't care if I get caught. I don't care who sees this. I don't care who's traumatized by me killing somebody in front of them. And the crazy thing is, is that I don't even know how this place stayed open because my friend Ronnie, rest in peace, he was the third person killed there in like 10 years. That's how it used to be back in the city. And that's how I lost a friend to a Chinatown gang war. And that's how a kid ends up going from a nice kid who wants to wash his hands, that wants to play with his friends, that shows respect to his mother, that does his homework. That's how a kid ends up joining a gang. And that's how a kid ends up dead in a couple of years. So think about it. If you, if you know people going down that route, you tell them this. If you used to go down that route yourself, you want to tell your own testimony, say it in the comments. But I'm Connor McCann. This isn't the only kind of story like this, unfortunately, that I have. I've, I've lost a couple of friends along the way in some pretty just, I, I just, I'm not going to say spectacular because that, that makes some kind of glorious thing out of their deaths. So no, they're my friends, but just extra circumstances. They I've lost friends in some just very extra ways and the circumstances that led to these deaths were just something just beyond normal we'll tell those stories at some point but for now my name is Connor McCann and thank you for listening